Good morning, good morning. Come on, y'all. That was weak. Good morning. It's so good to be here. Let me, let me publicly express my, um, my affections for you. I deeply, deeply, deeply missed you guys last week. Um, heard you were in good hands with Pastor Earn. Heard he did an amazing job pointing you guys to Jesus. Was, was Pastor Earn okay last week? Yeah. All right. Hey, man, I told you guys, there's two things you can expect every single time someone gets up before you. Uh, no matter if I'm here, no matter if I'm not, no matter if I'm before you, there's two things that my, my hope and prayer is that I can, I can stand firm and say, number one, that the person will faithfully preach the text, faithfully preach the Bible, line by line. We're not skipping. We're not making stuff up, but preach only what the scriptures have to say. And the second thing is that that person should be able to faithfully point you to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Why else would we come here, right? Why else would we gather? Why else would we get ourselves around the word of God if we're not going to talk about the person in the work of Jesus. It is the most important message. First Corinthians 15, don't turn there. First Corinthians 15 uh, talks about this. It talks about how the gospel message is of first importance. And a church that goes off track, a church that loses its priority on the focus of Christ is a church that is on its way to being uh, unhealthy. And so to, to, um, anytime somebody gets up, they're going to faithfully preach the word uh, the text, and they are going to point you to Jesus Christ. And so I'm grateful for Pastor Earn. Uh, I was off last week, got a chance to relax, and took my family down to Florida and got some rest. Uh, we celebrated 14 years of marriage, Ty and I. Amen. So when you, when you guys see her, make sure you guys tell her happy anniversary. Uh, it's been an amazing 14 years, a, a lot of growth, a lot of ups and downs, but the Lord has been so gracious to, uh, speaking of, of marriage and, and, and just the importance of marriage, can we thank God for Kristen Tashina? Man. It's so good to have them back. They were zip lining through the jungles and doing all types of horseback riding and stuff. Just checking y'all out. Uh, but we're so happy to have them back and actually have them back. I heard they were here last week, but it's so good to see them back, actually leading us back in worship. And so we celebrate marriages, right? In a, in a culture that 50% of marriages all end in divorce, we celebrate when someone is married and is excited about marriage. So thank God for them and uh, for those of you who are moving towards that and engaged, Timmy. Bless God. God for Timmy. Uh, just pushing him a little bit. That's all. Just pushing him a little bit. Uh, but seriously, amazing week, just relaxing, disconnecting. You know, I, I really just literally fell off the radar, trying not to answer emails, trying not to answer uh, too many text messages, phone calls, uh, because, I, you know, someone once said that if you don't come apart, you'll fall apart. I mean, that is so true. And that's just for everybody in here. If you're one of those people that works a busy, busy job and you have a chaotic life, um, it's nothing more important than just pulling back and disconnecting. And so I pray that you guys would practice a Sabbath at least once a week. And sometime during the year, you just disconnect and pull back. It's always good, even from social media. Sometimes you just got to pull off of social media and just disconnect from it. Listen, I'm eager to preach the word. So if you could turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm on a, a little bit of a time crunch here because I do want to get us out of here at a good time. As soon as we say amen, if we all could just start heading towards uh, Marcy and Green, the Herbert Von King Park. I'm telling you, uh, you know, Gabe never, ever threatens me, but he threatened me this morning. And so um, 
so, so I want to be, I want to be mindful. So listen, seriously, if you guys are going to the park, please, right afterwards, we, we would love to have you, you head right over. Second uh, Samuel chapter nine, Lord has really been through this week off. I've been just praying and meditating on just the grace of God, right? That's the message we preach every week. No gospel preacher preaches do more, work harder, try harder. We preach God's grace. Uh, and in the midst of that, our response to that is that we want to follow, uh, f- follow and be obedient to what the word says. Uh, but the, the Lord's grace has really been resting on my heart. And so I want to preach 2 Samuel chapter 9. Um, I'll, I'll do 13 verses and we'll, we'll try to get through it as quickly as possible. Let me read. Verse number one. And David said... Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba or Ziba. I'm going to call it Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. Verse three. And the king said, is there not still someone from the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Makar, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. The king David sent and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell at his face, fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you the land of, your, of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Verse number nine. Then the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, and he said to him, and the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all of his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and, you and, your, sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table." But Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord Lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table, at David's table, like one of the king's sons. Verse 12, and Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Listen to this. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem and ate at, and he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. I want to preach from the topic entitled, Nothing But Grace. Nothing But Grace. Let us pray. Father, this morning we are desperately in need of the grace that's found in your text this morning. Thank you for Jesus Christ that secures our right to be able to gather together and Uh, to be able to worship and sing and preach and listen and hear and engage. Father, we need your spirits working, and we thank you that Jesus has secured the right for us to do that. Pray that I would be faithful to your text today. Would you help me to preach with faithfulness, boldness, and clarity? Pray that at the end of this, we'd all walk out and say, man, I heard about Jesus and the grace of God. 
found in the gospel today. Be faithful to us as we go into your text. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Nothing but grace. Last night I took a flight in from, uh, from Florida to John F. Kennedy Airport, JFK Airport. Y'all, y'all know there's two major airports in New York. First one is JFK, which is where we flew into. I'm very intrigued whenever I see an airport named after a person. I'm always intrigued because I want to find out why, what made this person so special that an airport gets named after him. I think all of us know about JFK. Most of us should know about him. He's 35th president, ran against Richard Nixon, beat him out for the presidency. They said there was something shady going on, but we, we, don't, we don't know for sure. Beat Richard Nixon. First president, I don't know if you know this, he was the first president to dance with an African-American woman at an inaugural ball. Uh, most of us know him for his, him being assassinated in 1963. So all of us know something about JFK. We can understand why an airport was named after a president. LaGuardia confuses me. Because I'm like, well, LaGuardia is an international airport in New York. Normally, if you're booking flights, always look at LaGuardia first, by the way. Always find some cheaper flight there. And here's probably why. I don't know if you know this, but on the ranking of best international airports in the country, LaGuardia is dead last. Like, I'm not joking. In fact, Vice President Joe Biden called uh, LaGuardia a third world country. Literally doesn't have a Starbucks in it. Like, how do you not have a Starbucks? Like, you have these weak coffee shops, like a Starbucks you needed in every airport. An international airport does not have it. So I'm a little confused by LaGuardia. So I said, man, let me research to find out what LaGuardia is all about. Found out that it was originally named Glenn H. Curtis Airport after an aviation pioneer. Later, name, later the name was changed to North Beach Airport. And then in 1953, it got the name that we all know, LaGuardia Airport, after the third-term mayor, Ferriola LaGuardia. I wanted to find out more about him. Well, what made him so special? Like, I understand a president in an airport, but a mayor in an airport, that seems a little odd. So I wanted to find out what made him so great. Found out that he was affectionately in New York. He was a mayor here in New York. He was affectionately known as the Little Flower. Now, that's a little weird, I mean, as a man. Like, if I'm walking down the street and you calling me Little Flower, that just, it just seems weird to me. But he was named the Little, nicknamed the Little Flower because of his short stature. Here's some of the things that he would do. He would literally take an entire orphanage to baseball games. An entire orphanage. Just take him to a Yankees game. Found out that when the New York newspapers would go on strike, he'd go on the radio and he'd read the comics just to lift up the spirits of the city. Um, he, he would also go uh, to City Hall and remove the, the judge for the night or for the day, and he'd rule all of his cases just to give him a break. There's one instance of something that I thought was amazing that really ties into our text this morning, uh, something that he did. One night on a cold January night, he goes down to City Hall. Remember, this is a true story. He removes the judge off the bench, and he begins to look at all of his cases. One case that was brought before him was, was between a grocery store owner and a little old woman that stole a loaf of bread. And so he comes in, he sees these two, and he says to the old lady, he says, why did you steal this bread? And she said, in, in her response says, well, I stole the bread because I had to feed my family. I have five children at home and have nothing to feed them. 
So he looks at the grocery store owner, thinking that he's going to be compassionate and empathetic. The grocery store owner responds and says, this is a tough neighborhood and we got to show her. If we don't, if we don't get her, then everyone else is going to come in the store and they're going to steal as well. So Mayor LaGuardia tried to be as fair as possible. He says, I'm going to fine you $10. And so he reaches into his pocket as he's saying this and he pulls out $10. He then looks at the rest of the room and he says, I'm fining everybody in here 50 cents for living in a neighborhood where an old lady has to steal bread. This is what he collected, $47.50. He then does something crazy. He takes the $10 and the $47.50 and he hands it over to this lady who was there because she stole a loaf of bread. She got $47.50. Here's what the newspaper article said the next day. It says, New York City newspaper reported that $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old lady who had stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. 50 cents of that amount being contributed by the grocery store owner, while some 70 criminals, people with traffic violations. Can you imagine the grocery store owner at that moment? I know he was like messed up. 50 cents of that amount being contributed by the grocery store owner while some 70 criminals, people with traffic violations, New York City policemen, each of whom had just paid 50 cents for the privilege of doing so, gave the mayor a standing ovation. This is what the paper says. It ends and says, this woman certainly received unexpected grace. My friends, that is what the essence of grace is. Grace doesn't only pay the debt. Grace gives you more than what you could have expected. And so that ties into exactly what our text is. Grace is undeserved, it's unmerited, it's unearned favor that God lavishes on you. You do nothing to earn God's grace, but God's grace is simply because he is a good God. And so in our passage today, this to me is one of the clearest pictures of the grace of our God, especially found in the salvation of sinful people like you and I. This, this text today gives us that I'm going to point out a couple observations from our text. First observation is found right in verse number one. First observation is that grace has been extended because of somebody else. Let's read verse number one. And David said, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show, the kind, that I may show him kindness? Listen to this. For Jonathan's sake. And so now the king is about to give grace to somebody not based on anything Mephibosheth has done well, not based on anything that Mephibosheth did in the, in the past, not even based on anything that Mephibosheth can bring to the table. Mephibosheth is going to receive grace purely based on David's love for Jonathan. Do you not see the gospel inference there? You and I are only accepted by God simply based on the fact that God is in love with Jesus Christ. It's the only reason we get in. You don't get in and beat your chest. You don't get in with your list of I did this, I did this. No, you don't get in because of that. You get in purely based on that. Let me give some context of where we are. David is now the king of Israel. The first king of Israel was Saul. David served Saul faithfully. Saul had a son named Jonathan. If you read 1 Samuel 18, you'll see that David and Jonathan loved each other. In fact, they had a covenant. The scripture says that their souls was knit together. I have no clue what that means, but they were in a close covenant relationship. The son of Saul, the king, Jonathan and David, they make a covenant. Years later, 
David uh, finds himself being the king and Jonathan and Saul are both dead because of the Philistines. So now Jonathan, Saul are dead. David is king and he thinks about the covenant that he made with Jonathan. That's the gospel. The covenant that was made to you and I years before you were born. I'll go so far as to say before the world was created, God made a covenant with his son that those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ and him alone shall receive eternal life. And so David is now going to extend grace, not because of anything great that Mephibosheth has done. And he did did nothing in this text. In fact, he's crippled at his feet. What can he bring to the king's table? What, What good can he bring the king? The king doesn't need him. He needs the king. And so we see here something very important about grace. Now, this is why this is so interesting that David's looking for him to extend grace. Because in ancient times, when a king would rise to power, he'd click kill the whole family that was just in power. Why would he do that? See, we, we're going through an election now, right? So we vote for who the next president will be. That's not how it was in the text. Like you either got poisoned or shanked in the shower. That's it. That's how you rose to the new king. And they would literally kill the entire lineage because they didn't want to, they wanted to prevent a revolt against them, a, a revolution against them. And so they kill the Last king, his son, his son, his son, because all of them are heirs to the throne. So he'd kill all of them. So think in your mind, like get in the text this morning. Mephibosheth, which was an heir to the throne, is now hearing that the king is looking for him. Can you imagine the fear that he would have felt? But the king doesn't look for him and execute judgment. What does he do? I want to show him kindness. Is that not our God? Let me just tell you, because I I know some of you in here are like, I'm really not a sinner. I'm kind of a good person. All of us in here, the moment you were born, you were born into sin. Psalms 51 and shaping in iniquity. That means the moment we were born, we were enemies of God. The moment you were born, you didn't even have to sin. The moment you were born, you were inherited with a sinful nature. God looking for us should not be truth, should not be grace, should not be kindness, should not be mercy. God looking for us should be wrath and judgment every time. But what does John 1 say? That Jesus come full of grace and full of truth. So when God's looking for us, those that have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, he's not looking for us to execute judgment, although he could. How do I know that Ezekiel 18.4 says, the soul that sins shall surely die. All of us in here have met that requirement of sinfulness. All of us in here. Now I said we're inherited sin, but all of us, let's keep it real. All of us fall into sin as well, right? Believers need to repent of that, but outside of Christ, we're consistently falling into sin. And just based on the holiness of God, even your righteousness needs to be repented of. That's how holy God is. He's perfect. He dwells in an unapproachable light. So the king looking for us, the one that is, dwells in unapproachable light, should not be looking for us to show us kindness, should not be looking for us to show us grace. But the text today shows us that the king searches for the cripple and he searches for him just because he wants to show him kindness. The second thing that I found very intriguing in verse number one was the criteria for grace. Look at what the criteria is. And David says, is there still, look at this word, anyone. And so Mephibosheth didn't have to meet a certain requirement. 
He didn't have to have a certain height, have a certain hair color, a certain eye color. He didn't have to bring anything to the table. He didn't have to do anything great. He just merely needed to be in the family of Saul. If he was in the family of Saul and Jonathan, he was a candidate for grace. If you are in here and you're like, man, I'm far from the Lord. Listen, you could be a candidate for God's grace purely based on the fact that you love Jesus Christ. Purely based on that. Outside of that, we have no right standing. I want to save you from that day that you stand before God and whip out that list and it falls to the ground. and You say, well, I walked an old lady across the street and I paid my tithes and I was at church. That will crush you. The only standard we have is one name on that list, Christ. That's all we have. And so Mephibosheth is being accepted purely based on nothing good that he's done. He says, is there anybody? So anyone that was a part of Saul and Jonathan's dynasty was a candidate for grace today. That is what you and I get within the gospel. Christ is our only hope. I love the song before the throne of God above. I don't know if you know that song. I don't even know if we sing that song before the throne of God above. There's a, there's a line in there that says, because the sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God. The justice satisfied. Here's the gospel to look on him and pardon me. That's the gospel that God looks at Jesus Christ takes your sin, all of your sin, past, present, and future, and puts it on Christ. And he's brutally crushed. And what do we get to stand before God and act like we lived 33 years of perfection like Christ did, and we didn't live one day of it. But yet we get grace because of Jesus Christ. This is Isaiah 53, 5. Upon him, Jesus Christ was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, We are healed. We're not healed because of anything we've done. The gospel says that the guilty is condemned, that the guilty walks free, and the innocent is condemned. That's the gospel. Only in the gospel does the villain, does the hero die for the villain. You never see that. You always see the hero being the, the one that is saving himself. No, the hero in the gospel dies for the one that's his enemy. That is what we get in the gospel. Now, I don't want you to read this this story. Walk away and say, this is merely a story about David and Mephibosheth. Look at verse two. Now there was a servant in the, in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So this was Saul's servant when Saul was still alive, Ziba. They called him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, I am your servant. Look at verse number three. And the king said, is there still anyone, is there still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? This is why I say, don't walk away and merely hear a story about David and Mephibosheth. Walk away and hear that this shows us, look at what the text says, the kindness of God. So what we get in the text today is not just a story about ancient kings and the court and the house. That's not what we're getting today. What we're getting is how God is kind to you and I. How is he kind to you and I? He's kind to us through Jesus Christ. And so he introduces us to Ziba now, this servant that was in the house of of Saul. But look look at Ziba's response. It's very interesting. Look at his response. Ziba said to the king, is the middle of verse number three. There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Notice something. Ziba doesn't, he does not refer to Mephibosheth by his name. He refers to him by his condition. 
He never says, yeah, there's a, there's a son of Saul, uh, of Jonathan. His name is Mephibosheth. No, he says, there's a son of Jonathan, but he's crippled in his feet. Many commentators will say that this is Ziba now trying to detour the king from trying to show kindness to him. King, what do you want with a crippled man? He can't even walk. Why do you want him? And so many commentators say that this is what, this is what the enemy does to you and I. He presents you to God by your condition, your wretchedness, the way your sinfulness. That's how he presents you to God. How do I know that? Revelation chapter 12, verse number 10 calls Satan the accuser of brethren. And then it goes so far to say he accuses us day and night. Can you imagine that? Day and night, your sin is brought before God because of the enemy. But the thing I love is that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. And first John tells us that, that the moment that the enemy comes to God and says, well, what about this sin? Jesus stands there on the right hand of the father and said, oh, I paid for that one. He says, well, what about this sin? 2,000 years ago, covered it. What about this one? Cross still has power, covered it. And so over and over again, as the enemy will bring up your condition, your wretchedness, your ratchetness, as he brings that up, Jesus is like, I covered it. Y'all ever watch Ratchet TV? That's, that's what our lives look like. Reality Ratchet TV, Housewives. No, I'm not going to go there. That's what our lives look like on a consistent basis. And so Ziba is now trying to detour the king. He's saying, listen, he's crippled at his feet. Why do you want him? When did he become crippled? You got to flip back a couple of verses. He became crippled, according to 2 Samuel chapter 4, at five years old. When, he was, when his nurse was making haste, picks up the kid, starts to run, and then drops him. I don't know if it was a spinal condition or if he broke his legs. I don't know what the issue was. The, whatever the injury was, he could not walk. Listen to this. Since five years old. All his life, he would, all he would have known was being crippled at both feet. Now the king is like, I don't care. I want him. And so Ziba brings up his condition to God. Look at David's response, because David's response, as it relates to the condition of Mephibosheth, shows us something very important about our own wretchedness. Look at the response of David in verse number four. The king said, where is he? Imagine this. The king does not ask how bad is he crippled? How long has he been crippled? How did he get crippled? The moment he hears that he can't walk, what does the king say? Where is he? So when you and I are in that consistent, perpetual sin, God is not sitting back going, I can't deal with that. That's too messy for me. What does the scripture say in Romans 5? Romans 5 While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for this future you. He didn't wait for you to get yourself together, that you that prays more. He didn't wait for that you. In the midst of your, your funky sin, he died for you. He didn't wait for you to get it together. And so the king is saying, okay, I hear he's crippled, but where is he? I want him. Imagine that within your own sin. Imagine that within your own life. You are a sinful person and God is looking for you. He's not concerned with his condition. He says, I want him like he is. Bring him to me. Bring me him purely based on my relationship with Saul. The second observation here that we get out of the text is, notice David saying, where is he? Is the king searching for the cripple? The cripple's not searching for the king. 
So let me just save you from this, I found Jesus model. Listen, you don't find Jesus. Jesus found you. Jesus is not lost. We are. And so I know you're like, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait a second. I got up and I said, excuse me 10 times. And I came down the aisle and I gave my life to the Lord. Can I suggest to you before you said, excuse me, you were saved in your seat. Jesus saved you in your seat. Why? Because he found you. You don't find him. He finds you. And if you feel like you found him, it's only because he found you first. Romans chapter 10, verse 20, Paul quotes Isaiah and he says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Can can I just tell you, if you and I think that we can search for God, we don't have it in us. Jeremiah 17, 7 says that our hearts are deceitful and wicked and desperately sick. Who can know it? So how in the world can a sinful heart, I'll go further than that. Ephesians says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. How can a dead person look for God? Like, can you imagine Lazarus died in the tomb? Can you imagine him getting up the night before, finding Jesus and saying, hey, dog, I need you to raise me up tomorrow. I'm going to go back to sleep. Raise me up tomorrow. Like, he didn't do that. He was dead until Jesus. He didn't move a finger saying, Jesus, all right, I'm, I'm half awoke. He was dead. And what does Jesus do? Calls life to something dead. That is, that's the greatest miracle in the scriptures to me. The greatest miracles is when a dead heart can be made alive to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so the king here is searching for the crippled. You're not searching for Jesus. Jesus searched for you, found you. And the the thing I love about Jesus is he doesn't give you an option. He doesn't say, oh, man, like I'm the better of 10 of the options. He's like, I want you. You're on my team. Come on, let's go. That's how Jesus does it. And you have no, you can't push against that. Once he wants you, that's it. It's called irresistible grace. You cannot resist it. When he, when he reveals himself to you, you have to go with him. Let's keep going because I don't have a lot of time here. Verse number four. There's so much in here. I, I want to keep going. I may continue this next week. Verse number four. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Makar, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Let me just quickly tell you about Lodabar. Lodabar is is known as no pasture or a place of unfruitfulness. And so you have somebody that has been crippled, paralyzed for, since he was five years old, living in a house that's not his, and he's living in someone else's house, house, the son of Makar, in Lodabar, which is a place of no pasture. Surely he was the furthest one that I would have thought that the king would have wanted to extend grace to. That should be very comforting to us that have walked in here with a heavy sin. Because, listen to me, you're not too far for God to reach. Like, he's in Lodabar. Not to mention, geographically, it's over 3,000 miles away. He's over 3,000 miles away from a fallen dynasty in Lodabar, a place that has no pasture, and the king is looking for him. So I don't care what you've come in here with. I don't care what sin you have committed. No sin is greater than the cross. Listen to me. You can't out the cross. You can't out grace. That's why the scripture says where sin abounds, grace does what? It abounds all the more. So as sin increases, grace increases. That's the thing that I love most about Jesus Christ. No sin is greater than the cross. I need you to feel the tension between verses 5 and 6. Moving quickly. Need you to feel the tension here. The king, then King David, verse five, then King David 
sent and brought him from the house of Makar, the son of Anuel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, with an exclamation point. Do you see the exclamation point? Like, when he does get to the king's table, he's greeted with excitement. He's not greeting being judged. Like, put, your, put yourself in that place. The moment you stand before God, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, do you know you'll be greeted with excitement? You're not going to be greeted. He's not tolerating you. God is not going, oh, man, I got a meeting with this one. He's not doing that. When he sees you, he's like, put your name there, Mephibosheth. He's excited about it. Now, the tension I need you to feel here is remember I said that each person in the family of Saul or Jonathan in ancient times would have been killed by the next king. So imagine this, 3,000 miles away, there's no plane, so it's not like a four or five hour trip. I'm talking days of a trip. Imagine the moment, imagine the fear that Mephibosheth felt when David's soldiers are knocking on the door. He's sitting in the house like, oh my God, he finally found me. He's going to kill me. He probably felt like a tortured animal, like, like, a, like a hurt animal in front of a vicious lion. He probably, all the way leading into Jerusalem, he would have felt this deep, deep fear. But what is he greeted with? Excitement. David's greeting for him shows us two, really thi- two things about grace. It shows us that grace means that the believer does not have to be afraid of God's wrath. Listen, if you've trusted Jesus, there's no wrath for you. The wrath was 100% absorbed in Jesus Christ. He drank the cup fully clean for you. Lick the bottom of the cup. There's nothing else for you and I to take care of as it relates to God's wrath. We're not under God's wrath. Why? Because Jesus was already condemned in our place. If God condemns us after condemning Jesus, this is double jeopardy. He's an unjust judge. If he condemns us after condemning Jesus Christ for our sins. Listen, the payment is permanent. It's it's settled. If you've trusted Jesus, we now get to be shown grace with excitement. So we don't have to be afraid of God's wrath. The second thing this shows us is you don't have to be afraid and hide your weakness either. Mephibosheth did not try to clean himself up. He didn't try to straighten out his leg. He didn't say, well, since I got days for this trip, let me learn how to walk. He didn't do any of that. He was able because of grace to go into the presence of the king with his own dysfunction. So your weakness, you don't have to hide. Why do we do that? Like no one's more miserable than the weak person that tries to portray himself as being strong. Like if you're weak, let's just say it. Let's, this is what church is for. This is what DNA is for. You and your DNA partner should be getting, you should be saying, I'm weak. This is where I'm falling in sin. If you're married, you need to confess that to your wife. This is where I need to do better. How can I repent? What do you see? And we have to not sit back with, with, with anger or judgment, but we have to sit back and look for ways to repent. See, that's what grace does. Grace allows you to be, you don't have to perform for God. You don't have to straighten your legs out to walk for God. You can come broken and crippled. We do not have to hide our weakness because we have a God that is more than gracious. Mephibosheth, with the exclamation point, is how he's greeted. Can you imagine how that would have put his fear right out the window? Like all the way there, he would have been like, oh my God, I'm going to die as soon as I get there. Worse, I'm going to be tortured and then die. 
But he sees the king and the king never met the boy. The king says, Mephibosheth, with excitement. Here's how you know he was fearful. Verse number seven. I'm moving quickly. Verse number seven says, and David said to him, do not fear. This is how you know he was fearful. He calms him down. That's what grace does. Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. That's what we get in the gospel. Jesus, God will, God the Father will see you and say, don't fear. I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of my son, Jesus Christ. You and I will be able to be accepted because of that. Do not fear. He calms his fear and he makes three promises, really one statement and two promises. He says, don't fear. I'm going to restore the land and you're going to eat at my table. Do you see what grace did? It gives him more than he would have expected. Like, I would have been just happy just hearing, don't fear. But you go so far as to say, I'm going to restore you land that was your father's land. I'm going to give that back to you. And David didn't have to do that in order to keep his covenant with Jonathan. He could have just let him live or put him on some type of royal welfare system. He doesn't do that. He says, no, I'm going to give this thing to where it costs me. I'm giving you land. I'm giving you land. And we know it wasn't, it wasn't a little bit of land. And I'll show you that in the next few verses. It wasn't a little bit of land. It was, it was a big piece of land. And so the grace that David is showing is costly grace. There's a book called, um, it's, called uh, uh, it's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship. There's a chapter in there called Cheap Grace. God's grace ain't cheap. Now, God's grace is free to you and I. But it cost God something. What did it cost him? Heaven's best. It cost him Jesus Christ. He sent his son for you, so it cost him something. David giving up land was not cheap. It wasn't cheap grace. It cost David something, and he didn't have to do it. But he did it because he wanted it to hurt himself. Look at verse number eight. Verse number eight. And he paid homage And he paid homage and he said, this is what Mephibosheth is saying to the king now. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Like David gets in the... Now, many people are saying that this is David. David calling himself a dog. First of all, that's the most degrading thing that you could have called anybody in ancient times. David calls himself a dog really is him showing humble submission to the king. It would have been great if David would have just called himself a dog. But what does the verse say? Dead dog. So, so Mephibosheth would have felt like lower than low, like there's, there's rock bottom and then there's underneath rock bottom. Like Mephibosheth felt like he was underneath rock bottom. The crazy thing is Mephibosheth saw himself as a dead dog, but David sees him as a son. You're not a dead dog. You're going to eat at my table. And I'm not bringing you in to eat at the table as a servant. You're not serving me. You're coming in as family. That's what we get in the gospel. You know, Mephibosheth obviously felt overwhelmed by these royal favors. He felt overwhelmed. That's what grace is. Here's how you know it's grace. Simplest way you can know it's grace. You know it's grace in your life when you're scratching your head saying, that's too easy. That's how you know it's grace. Every time. When I was saved, I was in the parking lot of a church that I've attended for years. In the parking lot of a church, a friend, I told you guys this story numerous times. Friend walks me through Acts 15, Galatians 3, walks me through being justified by faith alone in Christ. I literally argued with him. I said, that's stupid and it's too easy. 
It's too easy. It has to be faith plus works. He's like, no, that's not the gospel. That's a whole nother gospel. And Paul says, not that there is even another gospel. And so you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You add nothing to the table. Mephibosheth brought nothing to the king's table, but yet he is accepted by God. And so he felt overwhelmed. And that's when you know it's grace. When you're like, when you look at your own self and think about the grace of God and you say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. How, how can you accept a sinful person like me? That's when you know it's grace. When you're scratching your head in awe of God, you know it's grace then. Let's keep moving. So verses six through eight, we saw David talking to Mephibosheth. David's now going to exclude him from the conversation. He's not even going to talk to him anymore. He's now going to talk to Ziba, Saul's servant, when Saul was alive. Look at verses 9 through 11. The king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him. And shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your grandson, shall always eat at my table. Listen to this. This is how you know it's a large piece of land. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Like, think of this. He just told Ziba that him, 15 of his sons, 20 of his servants are all going to till this land. Listen to me. You don't need 36 people to till half an acre of land. You got 36 people, that means there is a huge piece of land that he is, that he is causing Ziba to serve Mephibosheth. And so Mephibosheth goes from living in Lodabar, a place of no pasture, a place that is unfruitful, hiding in somebody else's house, to owning his own royal estate. See, that is the gospel. I was on Facebook, and I was, I was watching this video of Nice Socks, by the way. I was watching this video, just distracted me. This is what happens. Um, I was watching this video of this lady. It was a cleaning lady, right? She's, she goes and she cleans houses, nice houses. She goes up to this house. I don't know if you ever saw this video. She goes up to this house and she, she has all of her cleaning products thinking she's about to clean this house. She's greeted by a lady at the door. The lady says, come on in. Do you smell that cooking? And the cleaning lady's like, yeah, I smell it cooking. She's like, before you start cleaning, I have this, this five-star restaurant guy, this, this guy, this chef that's in my kitchen. He's cooking this crazy meal. I just want you to taste it. And the lady's like, all right. So she sits down at the table, and they bring her this spread. And she's just eating and eating and eating. And then the doorbell rings, and it's a masseuse. And so the, the lady that owns the house is like, hey, be, before you start cleaning, I want you to get a massage. Like, try this massage out. So the lady sits down. The cleaning lady gets a massage. Later on, the lady's like, hey, I have these clothes upstairs that you look about my size. I'd like you to try them on because I just want to see what they look like. So she tries on these expensive clothes. She puts on all these clothes, and the lady is watching her. And she's like, oh, that's great. Then the doorbell rings. The cleaning lady goes to open the door, and it's her daughters with boxes and keys. And the lady says, oh, this isn't my house. This is actually your house. I'm giving it to you. See, that is what grace does. Grace takes you from being the cleaning person to owning the house. It's said no prosperity gospel. That's what grace does. It gives you more than you could ever expect. Think about Mephibosheth living in Lodabar and is now owning his own royal estate with 36 servants tilling the land for him because he's crippled. 
That is what grace is. Let's finish this up. Grace also provides a family for him. Look at verse number 11. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord, the king commands, his servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table. Listen to this, like one of the king's sons. He does not eat at the table like a guest, like somebody that David tolerates. He eats at the table like his own son, an adoption. That's what the scripture tell us, that we have received the spirit of adoption. When we've trusted Jesus, you are burst into a family of believers, into God's family. That's what the gospel does. The grace in the gospel takes you from being a lone ranger out in the world and puts you into a family and adopts you. You know, I I was looking at adoption laws in different states, and there are some states in the U.S. that a person could put his will together. If he has three sons, he could put them all in his will. If he has an adopted son, he could put him into his will. You can amend your will to take out the three sons, but in some states, you cannot take out the adopted son. What that shows us is really what the gospel is. I love what Tashina said. We can't lose this thing. Once you've been accepted into the family, you don't lose it. You're eternally secure. He doesn't amend his will to kick you out of the family. Okay, I know you're not believing me about this eternal security, so here's a couple verses I'd like to just put to you. John 6, 3, uh, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, listen, I will never cast out. This was more explicit. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch you out of Jesus' hand. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You can't believe, have eternal life for 10 minutes and then lose it. You can't do it. Not according to what the scripture says. Romans eleven twenty nine. 29, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Jude 1, 24, another explicit one. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, present you to the presence of God, blame us with great joy over and over and over again. The scriptures show us that if you're adopted into the family of God, you don't lose your adoption. I know you're like, well, what about when I sin? Can't I, can I sin and fall out of God's grace? That suggests that you, when you say that, what you're saying is that I earned it by my works to begin with. You didn't earn salvation by your works. You're not sustained for salvation by your works. Now, the believer, when he's confronted with, the, with God's grace, grace isn't a license to sin, right? That's the big thing I hear. Well, if you preach grace too much, people will say there's grace. I can fall into sin. But then, didn't Paul deal with that? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And then he goes so far as to say, how can we who are dead to sin live in it? We can't live in sin. And so the one that is confronted with grace, transformed by Jesus, hates sin. So it's not a license to sin. If anything, grace overwhelms us to the point where we don't even, we don't want to touch it. We hate sin. Not the consequence of sin. Right? That's most of us, right? We we don't want to fall into sin because we don't want the consequence of it. No. The believer hates the sin itself. That thing that was palatable to you, that thing that you were consistently doing, grace pulls you off track. I got to finish this up. Verse number 12 and 13. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived 
in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame at both feet. I love that. How the scripture, the passage then ends reminding us. I know you saw all of these royal favors he got. He's lame in his feet. That's what the scripture ends by telling us. Now, four times in this chapter, so far we have seen, four times we have seen that David said that Mephibosheth has a permanent place at his table. Four times. It says always. He's eating at my table always. Four times. We saw it in verse 7. We saw it in verse 10. We saw it in verse 11. We saw it in verse 13. Now, when I read this, and I'm ending now. In fact, I'm going to close the Bible. That'll let you know it's ending. When I read this, the thing that I, I'm always thinking is who's at that table, right? I don't, I don't, this is great that he's eating at the table, but it's not like he's dining with just David and him. Other people would have been at this table. So I'm always thinking, well, who's at this table? You know who probably was at the table? David's son, Absalom. Let me tell you what the scripture says about Absalom in 2 Samuel 14, 25. It says, now on all of Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was not even a blemish. Let me just tell you, when the scripture says that you're handsome, you, you're that dude. Like he's the, he probably had like rock hard abs, like not a pimple on his face. He probably, the scripture says he, was, he was, had not a blemish on him from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. He would have probably been at the table. Imagine this perfect looking person at the table that Mephibosheth is at with crippled feet. Who else would have been at this table? Probably David's other sons, David's beautiful wives and David's uh, beautiful daughters. Joab, the general of David's army, possibly could have been at this table. There would have been princes and princesses, soldiers and statemen, men of power and men of wealth. Can you imagine dinner time? When all of these elite people are at this table and David comes clicking down the hall, I mean, Mephibosheth comes clicking down the hall with his crutches. See, here's the beauty in the gospel. When, when Mephibosheth sits down and the tablecloth cloth covers his legs, he looks like everybody else at the table. See, that's, that's the grace in the gospel. When you are presented before God, you look like Jesus Christ. He sees the blood of Jesus smeared all over your life. And so in your mind, you're like, how can that be? Like, I turned up last night. How can that be? This is the grace that's found in the gospel. And so as you wrestle with grace in your own life, my hope, my prayer, my deepest desire is that grace would run you towards Jesus, not away from him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Some of us in this room, if we're honest, we're hiding out in Lodabar. We're still very, very far from you. We're not in a place where we feel connected to you. Truth of the matter is that you and you alone are gracious to us. And because you're gracious to us, we are now accepted into your family as one of yours. Father, we didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't do anything to, we, didn't, we don't deserve it. We've been trifling. We've, we've dysfunctional. We come from dysfunctional families. We're dysfunctional ourselves. But just the fact that you've lavished your love on us now gives us right standing before you. We thank you. May the gospel message of grace never get old to us. 
May every single time we hear it, we get that feeling that we get when we're at the Grand Canyon or at Niagara Falls, that huge, overwhelming feeling of feeling like the world is so big and we're so small. May we feel like that every time we are confronted with the gospel of grace. Father, may we not hear grace talk about it from a privileged position. We did nothing to earn it, but Jesus has, did every, has done everything to secure it. We thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.